real life. Superpowers. When I need to decide what I want to do, where where I want to focus, follow the thought process. Am I in this environment the best person to do this? If answer is, is yes, then first, am I am I kind of technically qualified? And if if yes, is it the best thing to do among other things where I'm qualified? So we're back from a quite long Corona break, no pun intended. And today we're excited to interview Eugene Levin. He's the chief strategy officer of SEM Rush, and he's also one of the first investors. SEM Rush is a software solution company that offers online visibility and marketing analytics data to over 5 million monthly users. It's very good. I actually use it myself and my agency. So I'm excited at the chance of getting a peek behind the scenes of one of the key people behind the successful tool. Real Life Superpowers So uh, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. And how are you holding in there with these uh, Corona COVID-19 days? Uh, you know, mostly, mostly at home. Um, I think uh, I, I'm lucky, lucky enough to have uh, enough space. So at least I can, I can work without uh, you know, too many distractions. On the other hand, it's great to be more with family. So you don't have to commute. Um, and, and that probably saves another, you know, two hours a day. Um, so I'm spending with my kid more time than I've ever had. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, I think there are pros and cons. Uh, I'm trying, trying always to find positive things in all situations. You know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to find positives. One of the, one of the biggest and oldest car rental companies filed for bankruptcy recently, we're going to see more things like this, and then all, all these people who work for them that they 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 going to lose their jobs, which is you know, terrible. And um, on the other side of the spectrum, you have guys like Zoom. So we are using them today. For them, I think it's just you know they they party like it's 1999, like <laughs> all the way. Their their stock stock price is very high, and and you know I think Zoom is an extreme example who just really benefited from this. You know, I don't think this was intentional and they're happy with this type of, you know, benefiting from the situation, but reality is they're, they're benefiting. The internet as a whole, anything that's online oriented 100% was a game here on the corona. Like, are you working physically now from home? We we moved everyone to, to work from home a long time before lockdowns. How did you do the switch? Uh, we, I, I, th- I think it was sort of not complicated. We just, one day we, we told people to stay at home and they stayed at home and everything else was, was normal. Like we just didn't have the same um, you know, in-person meetings, in-person communications, but otherwise nothing really changed that much. Like how do you, how do you implement culture now? Like, so I think two months is not really enough time for, for the culture to deteriorate. And uh, you know, especially if you have been working on it for 10 years, uh, but I think maintaining culture in the long run, if people never meet in person, uh, is hard. So right now we're kind of just, just thinking how we make sure culture stays at the level where, where we want it to be. You know, we, we do a lot of things like, uh, for example, mandatory camera on, on video. So at least people can see faces. 
we do Q&A sessions with the leadership team more frequently than we, we had done it before. So if people have questions about, you know, how to behave in different complicated situations, that they can understand what type of um, solution is in line with, with the culture of the company. But if people don't meet in person, culture deteriorates eventually. We use the same problem between, uh, let's say, European offices and, and United States offices. I mean, they never meet in person, how they exchange culture. So we were sending a lot of people back and forth. Uh, I, I personally, uh, you know, normal times I would travel, um, you know, six, four or six times a year back and forth and spend, um, you know, every, uh, spend one month on every one round trip. So when I, when I lived in Europe, I, I would go here and spend four or five months here. Now when I live in the United States, I sometimes go back to Europe and spend one month there. So for a global company, it's, it's not like we didn't have this, this culture exchange uh, problem to deal with uh, at the beginning. When did you join the company? So I, I joined the company in 2016. And when was it founded? 2008. Okay. Yeah, I'm relatively new here. Got it. But you're, but you're an investor in the company, right? Uh, I, I personally not. I, I, when I met founders, my, my occupation was an investor. I was a partner in a big uh, VC firm. Uh, but yeah, they, they didn't take our money. So, so technically, I'm, I, I'm not an investor. When I met them, I was an investor. And I was probably one of the first investors who kind of spotted the company. So I think before uh, before me, they they maybe had a couple conversations with investors ever, and and it never went forward for you know many different reasons. But in general, they they didn't like. Oh wait, like you were an investor in general as like your day job or like. So I was partner in in a firm called Target Global, which uh, you know used to be quite big growth stage firm, and now it's a it's very big um, European growth and late stage firm. But they also do seed and, and early stage. But uh, when I when I joined, we were doing uh, mostly growth stage. What does it take to be an investor? What do, you ha- what, what do you have to do? And how do you know it's like, we're going for this deal? Like, well, what is the most important thing? That's a very good question. I think I think the, the type of the deals that you want to do changes with the firm's strategy and uh, with with, let's say, period in your life. Early in your career, uh, to have extraordinary outcomes, you have to take extraordinary risks. And I think a lot in the becoming professional, successful investor is luck at the beginning. Um, And then over time, you you can start, you know, behaving more safe, you know, in, in a more safe way. And, and choose deals differently. Uh, for example, we, you know, when, when we were doing our first firm, we did seed stage. We didn't care a lot about, you know, pedigree of founders. We, I mean, we, want, we wanted to have uh, some chemistry with them, but we didn't require people to be, you know, serial entrepreneurs or, or anything. And we were optimizing for valuations because we, we, we understood that with, with resources that we have, we need to buy uh, good ownership very early, and very cheap. So um, so we, we focused on specific types of, of deals. So technically, companies that were sort of under undervalued in a way. Uh, and, uh, and that was an approach. And I think with that fund, um, you know, 
a lot of companies didn't make it, but a lot of companies uh, showed a very, very good return. Uh, now, with, uh, with the growth stage firm where I worked after that, we had different approach. So technically, the idea was we, we should not lose money. We, sh- we should pick assets where maybe they will not go up you know, 20 times or whatever, but we should not be losing money. Uh, and it was a you know, different strategy, different approach. And, and criteria were very different. We were looking at who else is putting money in this company, um, you know, also because it's a late stage uh, transaction, you can, you can see uh, a lot of uh, data. So we were very, very data focused. We, we sliced and diced, you know, all sort of cohorts. Um, we, we did very good analysis uh, about, you know, unit economics. So, th- so that was our focus. So I think with stage, and also, you know, uh, time in your career, things change. But I think at first, to become successful investor, you, you need luck. Because I can write best ever, the, you know, theoretically, I can write best ever um, textbook on how to do venture deals. And there are plenty of those books, actually. You can read all this stuff. And, and you know, the theories is the same, you know. But, but at, at first, you need luck. And then once you have luck, you get network. Once you have network, you start getting better deals. Um, once you get better deals, um, you can, you know, also start getting a little bit better terms because you're such a, you know, famous investor and everyone wants to work with you. So what do you say no to? For professional VCs, that would be uh, the point of strategy. So, so you sit together with partners and you say, we are going to invest in A, B, C, D because, and then this because can be, you know, we have better experience than anyone else in the world in this area. Or uh, there is a great macro thesis. And, and in most cases, you, you want to have something, some sort of information asymmetry. Like, like, I will be more successful than average person in investing this because you know, even if, if even if it's a macro thesis, it's, it's, it should be some sort of thesis that you know and other people don't. So, so you'll have sort of more undervalued assets um, in your portfolio that will outperform. Um, but this is point of strategy, and and this is, you know, from my experience, um, almost any strategy is good because some smart people sit together and make those decisions and. What, what's, what's really hard is discipline, like to actually execute the strategy that you wanted to have. And um, I mean, I, I had I had these issues with strategy, with executing strategy a lot because, you know, sometimes you just get in love with, with certain space and you and you have some some success there, and and you have good understanding. So so you start being overexposed to it. So that's why it is very important to have uh, founders from different backgrounds because. You know, one of the good deals that we had in our first fund was in travel space. So we started investing a lot in travel just because we liked the space and we understood it. But uh, for for diversification point of view, it's not it's not a good strategy. So you need to be, and we understood this. But you know, one thing is a dis, uh, well, one thing is strategy. 
you can you can have smartest strategy in the world, but but you also need to have a discipline to follow the strategy. That's that's actually hard. That's why you want to have partners who sort of do do checks on you. When you started investing, did you start off as a partner in a VC, or did you first have like a mentor and work somewhere? Like, how did you get into this whole world? So yeah, yet again, I think I, I was kind of lucky. My background before VC was engineers. I'm master of science in engineering. I, I used to work uh, for many years uh, in, in um, tech. As an engineer? Yeah, as an engineer, as a project manager. At the end, I was doing more of a business business and negotiations than, than project management. But that's, that's how project management role evolves. You know, first, you manage internal resources, and then you start communicating with uh, clients. That, that's very natural progression. But... I think at some at some point, uh, I I just figured out that you know if I just follow this path, um, you know it might, be, it might be comfortable life, but I'm not going to be rich, and <laughs> and I kind of always have the goal uh, to be rich. Uh, I I don't even know why. It's probably you know because when I when I was a kid, we would you know I wouldn't say poor, but you know not rich, and. Um, and you know we we looked at you know we watched all the all the movies uh, from you know from United States and it, it, it just was, was very real that people live differently out there and they reach and we are not like them so um, so yeah I always wanted to sort of have uh, eventually certain lifestyle and um, and I just realized yeah I mean engineers make you know comfortable money but it's it's not on that level. So started looking at what else I can do. And um, one, one of my friends actually uh, started a VC firm. And uh, at, that, at that point, and that, at that part of the world, there were just not a lot of, uh, let's say, associate that you could hire from the market. There, there was no market. What part is that of the world? Uh, Russia. Okay. So, so yeah, I mean, I mean VC industry is, is still pretty much in... You know, not very developed. But at that point, it was just almost nothing. There was no nowhere to. When was this? Uh, it was um, 2010, roughly. So. And at this stage, you were like after a few engineering jobs, uh, sort of escalating to more business-oriented jobs, mm-hmm. uh, and and now your friend is opening a VC. Yeah, I was looking for something, and he was opening the firm, and he needed some someone to help with the with, with the VC firm. I, I didn't know anything about investing. Um, I kind of like the idea of investing uh, because you know I, I you know I was trained in statistics and I, and I realized that you know being involved in twenty things is statistically better than being involved in one thing uh, from from you know risk profile. So I, I like the approach about not putting all the eggs in the same basket, but I, I didn't really know what is it, and I, and I didn't have um, financial background. Of any of any sort, but his logic was that it's it's easier to train engineer or product guy uh, to learn about finance, especially you know early early stage seed stage finance is not that complicated, than to have someone who studied finance and and make them understand technology and um, and product. So, so that was huge, and he didn't have you know more huge market of, uh, to hire people from. So, so he wanted to have someone who he he can rather trust than not necessarily rely on on hard skills. 
And yeah, I mean, I, I, I learned a lot. I worked with many, many different portfolio companies, helped them uh, with, with, you know, everything from, from product and, and business partnerships and marketing. And uh, at, some, at some point, there was a company where I was really involved heavily. Uh, and uh, then we sold this company. It was a very good outcome for, for us. And I was promoted to partner. And then, you know, that, that's, that's kind of how, how this whole thing started for me. So that's how it started. So did you stay a few years in the investment world? Like what happened between that and joining SCM Rush? The company was the investment. Oh, what company did you sell? So that's a good question. You know, after we sold most of the portfolio companies, I mean... You sold most of them? Yeah, we sold most of them. Um, and I think there's probably one of them that, that we are still waiting, uh, even though it's like you know, almost almost 10 years. So, so there will be 10 years soon. But, but, but they're doing well. It's more like one of those uh, cases where you wait, but it's, it's, it's in a good way. And these are Russian uh, companies? No, yeah, we, we were doing mostly uh, kind of sort of, sort of global companies that, that targeted global markets, they, you know, a lot of them had R&D in, in uh, Eastern Europe and, you know, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus. Uh, but, yeah, the, we, we didn't target Russia's, Russian markets specifically. We, we were not big believers in, uh, in consumer space in Russia and even, you know, even less uh, we believed in B2B space in Russia. So, yeah, we... We with we with at that point we thought that uh, it's a great market for, from talent perspective. You can get really talented engineers, and now even marketers and and uh, you know even business people. But uh, it's it's not a good market to sell products to. I love your your humility because you're 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 speaking about things that you know the statistics as a statistic guy are really against you. Okay, and you're like passing over as if you said nothing. But you just told a story where you start working for a VC with no experience, okay? And then, which I understand because a product guy is like an integrator between technology and business, so it's actually a good person to hire for that. But you said, okay, and then we sold that company and we sold a lot of our portfolio and, you know, like we left that alone. But <laughs> like that's the, ma- like it's actually, this is like a pivot point in your life, right? Because suddenly you get like a master's degree and you know, there's case studies behind you. So a little bit, I want to understand for a second. Okay. Like what are the companies? How did you sell that? Like how, how did, and what are the statistics there? Cause it sounds like you did something incredible. Most of the p- portfolio, it's like, you know, there's not a lot of uh, companies that do most of their portfolio. Like how many, how many were sold and was successful? Yeah, I think I think two deals were what I would call really, really good outcome. Um, so, so one one transaction technically returned the whole fund. Another one provided very, very material upside. Um, then some companies closed. Uh, some companies technically we you know they, they reached the point where they're you know sort of profitable. And founders just decided that they, you know, you know, not going to make a huge story out of it, but it's going to be healthy business. Mm-hmm. So they just collected cash and distributed the cash. So we, you know, we, get, we got some money out of it. Some companies pivoted and was sold later, but in a, in a different way. Um, and uh, some companies are still there. So and and and, and growing. So that that was the first fund that we invested. 
we, we, we did mostly seed in early stage. But the I think the trick was that with those two deals that, that kind of did really well, um, we returned fund. And the question was, you know, we, we can just, you know, raise a new one and, and deploy new capital, or we can do something else and just wait for the, the old portfolio to eventually be. So we were passive investors in all remaining transactions. We sold all the, uh, you know, sold all the companies where we were you know, active investor. And uh, we, we had some time to do other things. And, you know, I wouldn't say unfortunate, but one of the things that we noticed is that from statistics point of view, it's really good to be an investor. But in terms of outcome, if you're, you know, founder of one of those successful companies, you, you, you end up doing better. And we felt that companies where we were more involved actually did much better than companies when we, where we were not involved. Mm-hmm. And started kind of correlating this with our personal skill sets. And we thought, okay, if we can make the difference, then why don't we build a couple of businesses ourselves? So, so me and my partner, um, we, we decided to build a couple of companies. Uh, I was focused on gaming uh, companies, so we uh, we built a game development studio and um, and um, publishing company. So we published um, mass multiplayer online RPG games in uh, in Eastern Europe. And uh, my friend actually started SaaS company in competitive intelligence space, and then later sold this company to a penny. And then he started one more company and sold it to uh, adjust. So, so he, he decided to focus on entrepreneurial career and was very successful in it. Um, my companies where I was more involved, they, they kind of went into, um, I, I would say lifestyle business stage where you know, they, they, they make money. It's, it's um, like voodoo. So yeah. So we were publishing uh, the, the mass multiplayer online RPG which was uh, you know browser based uh, almost almost like world of warcraft but in the browser and you know uh, in a steampunk setting it was a very cool game i played it you know, myself um, yet, yet again at some point you reach certain uh, level where where it's a stable stable business uh, and, and you can get cash but but you realize it's not going to be you know fortnite so so in in, in gaming you also have this sort of uh, you know, it's a heat-driven business, even more than VC. So, yeah, sometimes you have Fortnite, sometimes you have uh, Total Failure, and sometimes you have something in the middle. So we, we had a game that was something in the middle. Uh, it was niche uh, to the point where uh, audience that we were able to acquire was very loyal. It was uh, not for everyone because of the setting, because of, uh, you know, requirements for skill. So it was, it was mid-core at the time where, where most of browser games were very casual. So, but, but, you know, it, it was good. I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, uh, complaining. It was good money. So, uh, and then the second company was uh, game development studio. So we were building games, but, but for other people, uh, you know, like electronic arts, uh, and not, not always games. Sometimes we built uh, assets, models. So, so pretty much anything. Um, yeah, and, you know, worked with a lot of uh, really, you know, top, Top gaming companies, you know, EA, uh, War Gaming, you know, many many other uh, companies. So so that was cool. Uh, but yet again, it's it's um, 
you know, ultimately any sort of outsourcing is a labor arbitrage. So uh, our our differentiation was that we had really amazing talent, but the problem with outsourcing business based on uh, amazing talent is that you cannot predictably hire amazing talent. So so we had great people who stayed with us because they just like like the the vibe and culture and and felt 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 comfortable. But we we couldn't find more people like this. It's kind of fascinating for me that you're a statistic oriented engineer. And you actually chose to go to a non-statistical uh, area and industry because what you're doing is gaming as content is sort of like getting out a movie. It's either they love it or they don't love it. And there's no statistics that you can hold that. It's a taste. And actually your partner went to a SaaS-based where the statistics have a lot of modeling to do. So like it, it, it suddenly you're going to the, to the opposite of what you did before, like on that sense. Are you a gamer? Like, do you love gaming and stuff like that? Was it, is it a passion? Exactly. I think I think most of people who do gaming they um, they understand how how bad the situation is from odds point of view, but they do it anyway uh, because because this is you know let's say you know childhood dreams. For for me, it was childhood dream. I was always you know uh, fascinated by video games. I uh, you know played a lot and. Uh, I, I just felt that this would be something very interesting, very comfortable. Unfortunately, building games is not as exciting as as uh, playing them. But I think most of people who, who go to gaming, very few usually have a solid plan. Like, yeah, we are going to to, to make a huge company, you know, do A, B, C, D. They, they just have a good idea uh, that, that they want to see live. So what would you do differently this round? If you, like, you had another... If you do it again and you had the energy, what would you do differently? Yeah, I wouldn't do anything differently. I mean, it was great experience. I learned a lot. Uh, you know, I didn't spend my whole life chasing something that is, uh, you know, impossible to achieve. Uh, but also, you know, sometimes, some, by the way, you know, sometimes in gaming, uh, it's it's about, um, you know, running long distance. So, so Ravio, for example, they did all sorts of things before they kind of had this heat with the Angry Birds. Um, you know, I, maybe I didn't wait enough, but I, I honestly think at, at that point, I realized what this is about. I realized it's much less fun than I thought it would be. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's it technically building game is not much different from process point of view than building other things. It's actually way more complicated, but with much lower reward. So, uh, from my experience, uh, some people, you know, get more lucky, but, I think yet again, I, I I had my share of luck with gaming. As I said, the publishing business was was quite quite healthy. Um, you know, game development studio was also healthy, and um, you know, as a business, but it was lifestyle business, not something you can scale. And when when you are twenty eight years old, actually, actually, I was I was even younger than that. Yeah, I was like twenty six ish. So. It's, it's too early to retire like and, and have a business where you just enjoy enjoy you know getting to the office and with with uh, you know game development studio as I said the issue was not that I couldn't sell more uh, deals and find more demand it's just I didn't have supply and I didn't know how to scale supply so you know I, I, could, I could show up in the office like you know maybe a couple couple days a week 
and sell enough to uh, you know to have work to do for the next couple of months. So it was you know, not you know at that point I, I started being you know not really bored, but started looking for other things, and that's. Um, that's when when I uh, was approached by guys from Target Global, so they they've just raised a huge fund um, at that point, and uh, needed someone who who could help them to deploy the capital. So I joined the firm, um, and uh, the strategy was to to invest in things that we understand, uh, which meant mostly consumer internet and. Um, yeah, we, we looked at last late stage where the, the job is mostly crunching the numbers. Um, yeah, we, we, we had quite a lot of interesting deals. Uh, you know, companies like Lyft uh, in Europe, we did Delivery Hero, which is, you know, yet again, at that point, it felt like it's a late stage deal, but they grew unbelievably since then. And, and right now they're, Sixteen billion dollar market cap publicly traded company. So um, that was very very interesting experience. Uh, but at some point, those kind of consumer internet companies they started to be uh, sort of inflated. Was the period where uh, you know, everyone was looking for Uber of something, you know, Uber of laundry or Uber of you know, and and everything was very very expensive in consumer internet space. You know, multiples, revenue multiples didn't make any sense to me. So I started looking at other other things. And I, I felt that software is really undervalued. Like like software multiples were almost all-time low, uh, especially for SaaS. And um, I just felt this side of the market is undervalued. We should focus there. How much was the multiplier for, for SaaS? Yeah, I would, I would say roughly four times, right? Which is, you know, comparing to right right now, I think you know, publicly good publicly traded companies have you know eight times, ten times, um, and and that time was more like four. So, um, so we, you know, the problem was software is a complicated space, and we had this rule about investing only in things that we know. So you know, we we looked at you know software that we used in you know, companies like Dropbox. Uh, you know, uh, and and I personally used SEMrush for many years. Um, you know, used it for marketing, used it for due diligence, and uh, just felt that I understand their model, understand their product, so I would be qualified to invest. So I reached out to to the guys, uh, and um, I very quickly realized that this is probably one of the most one one of the most financially you know successful companies that I've ever seen. You know, in, in my definition of financial success, very profitable, growing fast, uh, didn't raise any money ever. Um, so I was very excited, but the problem was they they were so profitable they didn't need my money. And um, I you know as many investors do in those cases, you know I just wanted to invest in relationship. Um, you know, was trying to be helpful, provided advice, uh, introduced them to, to you know other people, uh, and eventually we met one more time, and I gave them another another pitch about why investors can be helpful beyond money and what else I can do for the business, and um, they they just told that you know they still don't need money, but I seem to be very helpful, so they kind of made me an offer that I couldn't couldn't reject. And then, so you sort of became 
you sort of stopped being an investor entrepreneur and joined the team as an employee? Yeah, you could, you could, you could say it this way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a problem if you work with people you like. And yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go and be employee at, I don't know, General Electrics. You believe in the product itself, so you want to be a part of it. Yeah. So, so if it's, if it's, uh, I, I don't see probably, I like to do things that I enjoy as, as you, as you said, in this case, I like the product, I, I, I like the mission, I like people. So, you know, being an employee, I, I don't have the, the sort of moral code that prevents me from being an employee somewhere. So, Oh, I wasn't saying it in a critical way. I was just trying to understand where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. And how are the people at the VC accepting you, you leaving? You know, it's 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 a very pragmatic conversation. If you if you if you can show that you're going to make more money in the other place, people understand. This. So, so in the, in this case, it was kind of obvious calculation, and um, I also I had to give up a lot. Like I, I have, you know, when you leave partnership, partners don't take it kindly. So so you lose you lose pretty much all, you know almost everything that that you had in the firm. It depends on, you know, specific types of agreements. But yeah, I, I had to give up a lot. Uh, and also, you know, I, I always, when I change places, I try to make transition as smooth as possible. So I, I think I stayed partially involved for at least a year uh, to make sure that, you know, everything I started gets finished, uh, that, you know, whatever I was working on is transitioned and in a good shape. So so it, it was, it was a, you know, it was all, all good. I still have good relationships with, with I know, uh, my partners at Target, um, you know, help them where I can. I have a question about like uh, getting into your like kind of super, superpower skill set here. I'm, I'm wondering something. Um, do you get bored quickly? Because you, you, you look like you like challenging a lot of, um, diff- like you really evolved, right? Because you started as engineer and then product manager and you said, okay, statistics, I'm moving on to the VC area. And in the VC, you changed different industries. Uh, and then you pivoted also to like, uh, be like the advisor, financial strategist. And it sounds like you're a person of evolution. So it's not like you're an engineer. You're like anything you want to be, okay? And you're like changing characteristics. Like you, you have that engineering brain, but it looks like you're you're adapting and learning and sort of like changing and evolving with also the time the, the times change right you will move to softer in a point where you had to move to softer because multipliers so you're solving a lot of problems and i'm wondering is this something that let it, you get bored and then you want to challenge yourself is it meeting different people and saying okay these people that i meet i really like what they're doing like what's your what what keeps you uh, making up what's your next step so I, there is no any any sort of grand grand plan. I I, I kind of just follow the the thought process when, when when I need to decide what what I want to do where where I want to focus. Follow the thought process. Am I in this environment the best person to do this? If the answer is is yes, then what sort of impact I can make there for the you know business for the partners. And uh, that, that's kind of how, how I evaluate things. So first, am I, am I kind of technically qualified? And if, if yes, is it the best thing to do among other things where I'm qualified? And, and um, I think, especially in a, in a small company, you have to wear a lot of hats. You can do marketing, but you also need to understand the product. You, you, know, you need to 
to speak the same language with the engineers. So you're sort of kind of full stack uh, professional. And th- this type of profile is very good for, uh, for early stage companies where you cannot hire five different people. So you want to hire one person who can do all those things. You know, obviously not full time, but at least close, close gaps. So as a company, you don't ha- at least have caps. And then as, as you move to later stages, uh, you want to focus on specific areas where you feel stronger than you know other people. Um, where you know can I can I do you know finance and PNL for a small company of twenty people? Yeah, absolutely easy. But you know, am I the best person to do the same thing for a company with eight hundred employees? You know, probably not. There are there are people who have done it longer and better and more successful in it. So so I need to focus on areas where I'm more uh, helpful. And over time, this, this area kind of gets smaller in terms of what, what you do, but it's get bigger in terms of what sort of impact you can make. So, so that's how I think, you know, my, my thought process of what, what, what to do next. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's not just between companies, like you said, you know, jumping from one occupation to another, but it's also within com- within one company role evolves a lot. You know, I'm, I, I used to be chief strategy officer when I joined, and I'm still chief strategy officer, but the role changed very, very significantly. As, as we were hiring extremely skillful and knowledgeable people, I would, I would you know, take off one hat and give it to them and then focus narrowly on other areas. But because company gets bigger, even with narrow focus, you can still do more every every year. If you say, "Listen, I'm I'm looking forward to succeed in this or do this," like what would be this? That's a that's a good question because when when I was was when I when I, when I was young, I mean, it's not like I'm old now, but but when I was younger, uh, I wanted to retire early and you know just just relax and do things. And when I had a chance, I, I felt that. Just, I just cannot do this. And I think this is very consistent with, with what I'm hearing from other people. Like our chief revenue officer, uh, he had multiple opportunities to retire and somehow he's still, still working and, and, uh, working more than a lot of, a lot of people I've ever met. So, um, for some reason, um, retirement is not necessarily going to be a good option. Uh, at least not early retirement. So, so if I, the, the question is, if, if, if this is not the option, then what, what else, what else I can do? I mean, I, I would, I would be happy to tell you that I have grand plan like Elon Musk, you know, to go to and colonize Mars. That's, that's unfortunately not the case. Uh, I, I don't plan too much forward for myself. I, I, I plan forward, you know, four or five years for the company. I think companies should have an end game. But I personally don't necessarily shouldn't. If, if tomorrow lives brings me to, to new challenges, that's great. If, um, I'm, I'm optimizing for, for happiness for me and for family. If my family... And me is happy with you know where we are today. I just need to continue doing doing this. And for me personally, I think what makes me happy is is sort of solving new puzzles in a way. So so I don't, I don't want to have problems like you know global pandemic to solve. That's that's a little bit 
above my pay grade, but I, I, I want to I want to have challenges that I you know reasonably can solve. And, um, and I think that's that's what get, gets me excited. I think if I if I, if, I, if I just stayed at home for a half a year and played PlayStation, I wouldn't be a happy person. So um, yet again, this is right now. Maybe maybe tomorrow it changes. But right now, I just I just want more challenges that are interesting but but solvable. I don't I don't want you know to hit unbreakable wall. And what would you say your superpower is? Well, I mean, we we talked a little bit about luck. I think. I think it is it is important. I, the, the the trick is uh, if you if you do some research, most of people feel that they're lucky. So I I try to justify that I'm probably more lucky than than many other people. There is some logic to prove it, but I think ultimately it's just you know subjective, and and most of people feel like so that would be not necessarily. Uh, the best thing to be as a, as a superpower, uh, just because a lot of people feel this way. Yeah. First of all, Domino uh, and Deadpool had the same superpower, so it's not really as bad. But uh, over over that, um, I think I think lucky in what you're saying. Can, can I uh, just try? So you can tell me if I'm wrong. But I think because you're a statistic person, okay, that decisiveness in the right area, okay, makes the potential of being right higher. Okay, so minimizing the risk is n- not really lucky. You're right that maybe you have 80% of getting a good decision. There's 20% that you have to be lucky not being behind them. But I, I, I sort of see because you have a lot of success behind it. At the end of the day, you picked each time a place either that you knew about or was safe or multipliers or arbitrage where statistically, okay, you have a high percentile to be lucky. So... Uh, seeking out opportunities, it's, you know, everybody has to be lucky, but you had higher potential than someone who just, you know, did things from a different design. So I think decisiveness is actually, you know, deciding where to be is, you know, uh, a good, a good uh, superpower. And, and I agree. And I think a lot of this is like fundamental. There is, you know, some fundamental like just from statistics theory, but you can, you can make numbers work in your favor. So, mm-hmm. so I think that's if, if I had to choose this way, the superpower, and and I you know wouldn't call it luck because luck is is you know you, I I think domino example is is actually good. I I would like to feel like I'm domino and I'm just you know always lucky. I'm not I'm not like this way, but but you're right. I mean, choosing choosing your path to make numbers work in your favor is is, is a good is a good superpower. And seeing seeing the world in in numbers and and probabilities, I think is is also a good number. People people get I think again there is some fundamental luck you know like tossing the coin, but there is also uh, the type of luck where where you subconsciously make decisions, but but your brain actually did the whole math. Right. So, um, so so yeah, that's that's this one, and then. I think you know. I'm I'm really I, I wouldn't call myself extraordinary in anything. You know I you know I can play guitar very very average. I play computer games very average. Um, but I think what what was different for me I can I could pick up things very fast and and become average a little bit above average in almost anything. So that kind of gave me the context where. 
because all of these experiences, because it, it was easy for me to pick up things, I would on average make right decision with higher probability than, than most of people. And, and I think with, with, with life, the trick is don't need to be right 100% times. You just need to be right more than other people. Uh, and, and that can lead to unproportional success. And I like the stock market example. In stock market, if you can be right 51% of time uh, out of 100, you're extremely rich, like, like better than anyone, because you, you're making those choices so many times that even this extra 1% gives you unprecedented gain. But that's only 1% better than random. So... So in life, you make a little bit less decisions than in the stock market. But you know, let's, say, let's say I'm just 10% better in making decisions than, than random. That's already good. And if some other person is, is you know, 5% better than random, then I already have, have double gain versus random versus this person. So that's, that's kind of how I approach this, this kind of superpower thing. I love that. Because you're talking about 100% of money, right? So you're either in the winning side, taking the 5% for something else or not. So there's like 100% at the end. So you just have to be 1% more right and you're taking the 1% from the, the losing side. I like that. And okay, last question. If you were to decide uh, to invest in something, what is a tip for an entrepreneur? Like, don't make a mistake, okay? Have this ready or do this. Like just one thing that's super important. So, so you know, this one thing always always changes. But I started my life, um, you know, not not like a career, professional life, with an approach that I should be the smartest guy in the room. And then at some point, I, I evolved to the understanding that if I'm the smartest guy in the room, I might be in the wrong room. So, um, so I think. The, the overall, overall conclusion is that yeah, you, you, need, you, need to, you need to be you know, smart and helpful for the team and partners, but, but if you are the only one who delivers value, then, then it's, a, it's a wrong rule. And, and I think that's, that's how I choose, I choose uh, partners to work with. I, I, I want to see people who are way, way ahead of me in certain areas. And, and I can be way ahead in other areas, but that's what makes a good team. I think a lot of, a lot of mistakes that, that I've seen from, from CEOs in, in early stage companies, they, they want to be the only smartest person, final decision maker. I, I just don't believe it is feasible in the long run. But I had the same attitude when I was younger. So, so that's, that's kind of one thing that I... I would probably uh, no, not necessarily change, but but you know, I would change certain decisions that I made back in the day if I knew them. Wow, you're giving us, I think, uh, a lot of room for thought here, a lot of food for thought here, uh, and I'm personally super curious about where you're going to be five years from now. Yeah, you, you never know. I yet again, I, I I used to have plans, but you know, my my grandma. Um, my, my grandma used to say that if you want to make God laugh, uh, you uh, laugh, you, you should tell him or her, you know, your plans. So, um, so the idea is, you know, you can have whatever plans, but life, life will not take them into account. Yeah, Don Lennon has a similar quote. 
Maybe your grandma is Yoko Ono. Well, I, I honestly don't know, but, but she, she, she definitely has some crazy superpowers. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately she passed away, but yeah, she, I, I learned so, so much from her. Um, it was very, very influential uh, through my childhood. And, uh, you know, like, like with all grandparents, you always wish you, you had a chance to spend more time with them when you're grown up and you can appreciate the wisdom instead of just rejecting everything like teenagers do. But uh, yeah, she, she had... She had extraordinary view, and I, I think she, she was one of the first people who explained me uh, the value of um, liquid assets and why liquid assets are better than liquid assets in some way. Uh, and and um, she did it without any sort of financial background or anything. And, and her idea was that you know if you think that you know. Just just buying jewelry is you know is 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 an investment because jewelry is expensive. Well, try to sell it. So, <laughs> and uh, and, and I was it was very you know, okay yeah I I haven't thought about this. How do I sell this thing? <laughs> like not the typical uh, grandma grandson relationship, I think. No, mine made meatballs really well. So. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, that that's the same. I, I learned all the nutrition nutrition uh, things. From her, but but her approach was, you know, she she, she was coming from uh, from from different backgrounds. So, for example, right now I, I, you know, I wouldn't say I don't eat bread, but I try to eat less bread. If she learned about this, she would be devastated. Like, like what what do you even eat if you don't eat bread? Yeah, the the generations evolving and thinking differently and adopting such different mindsets. Yeah, but the, the problem with their generation, they didn't have enough food, and we have too much food. So, yeah. And handling that. Oh, hey, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been really great. Uh, I have a lot to think about now. I think Renan does too. Yeah, you, like, I, I really, I really like uh, your perspective in the last two two notes. Um, uh, I think, I think uh, that gives a really deep deep thought of like also uh, what 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 looking for. And I really appreciate your humility as well. Um, I really am happy that we met you in this age and not when you were 26. Yeah. Because uh, apparently you're, you're different. <laughs> I hope we'll be in touch uh, and I hope to do this again sometime in the near future. Perfect. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. I, I, I like those, those types of podcasts. And uh, yeah, and also with SCM Rush, like I'm a user, I love it. So keep on the good work there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. Real life. Superpowers. Technology. It's alive! Real. Live. Superpowers.